0: Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today, I figured I would do a trauma topic. Well, it's mostly trauma. It's also any other disease state in which a patient may be exsanguinating, such as massive GI bleeding, uh, massive obstetric hemorrhage, anything like that. And what we're going to talk about today is the logistics of administering a massive transfusion. Not which products to give, not the theory, not as one-to-one-to-one better than one-to-one-to-two and all that stuff. We've covered that. No, I mean like the hands-on what you need to do to get large volumes of blood products into a patient who is hemorrhaging out in front of you. Let's set the stage. So you have a blunt trauma patient, they have an unstable pelvis, and you've already administered the two units of blood you keep in a fridge in your department this would put you in the situation of uh, you've now reached the critical administration threshold that is when you give three units of blood the patient is predicted to require massive transfusion or maybe you took a look at the patient from the moment they arrived and you said "Oh, abc score is high or your gestalt says this is a massive transfusion patient so now you've activated the massive transfusion protocol at your hospital you have one of those right because if you don't the chances of you getting blood products with alacrity is virtually none so you need a massive transfusion protocol if you're at a place where you take care of bleeding patients so you're at that point you call for it someone's running to get it and in the meanwhile you look down to verify what type of iv access you have Now, can you do a massive transfusion with a peripheral IV? Of course you can. I don't like to. I'll tell you why in a couple minutes, but you can. Now, if you're going to, it should be large bore. Now, what large bore is keeps shifting, but it's at least 18 gauge and preferably bigger. Now, here's the thing. For some, it's a badge of honor to get great big peripheral IV access and folks will have 14 gauges in their hand and go for it. Now this is wonderful if you manage to get the 14 gauge in perfectly and don't backwall it. This is a horrible idea if you manage to blow the one beautiful vessel your patient has trying to get a 14 in when an 18 would have slipped in like butter and I am okay with 18 gauges, especially because, as I've alluded to, I'm going to get central access. Uh, So I would gladly take an 18 that's in and confirmed and nice rather than a 14 gauge in which you've backwalled the vessel because that IV is so big and then did that ridiculous pull back into the vessel lumen and advanced the catheter thing. That always ends badly as soon as you start pressurizing. Now, there is a device out there called the RIC, the Rapid Infusion Catheter, that allows you with a wire exchange, Seldinger-type technique to exchange out a 20-gauge or 18-gauge for something enormous, something like an 8-French peripheral IV. You could even sew it in, which makes me a lot happier than just relying on tape in these sweaty, exsanguinating patients. And that's a nice option. I've had variable success. In the young patients with pipes in their arm, it's gone in No problem. In the older folks, uh, the ones who I look at their vessels and I say, ah, I'm not going to try a 14 in this patient, uh, those are the exact ones I found it blows in. And when it blows, you basically destroy that vessel. So now you've lost an IV uh, at that location when you had one before. So again, having an 18 that works is better than a theoretical RIC or 14 gauge. So I'll start happily with the 18 gauges. And the key on this is to take off the saline lock, take off whatever device is attached to that. You want to attach your rapid infusion system directly to the angiocath if you're going to go peripherally because all of those valves actually cut down on the flow rates. Now, if you have the saline locks where you can still detach the cap and just keep the uh, tubing, and the tubing is wide bore, not tiny, tiny bore, Uh, no problem. You could just attach directly to that, which is nice because it means you don't have to um, undressing the IV to change it out and potentially yank it while you're doing that, especially with these new IV securing devices, which are beautiful for keeping the IV in and horrible for getting it out to change over to something else. Now, personally, I like a Cordis. I don't care where it is. It could be in the groin in a non- penetrating abdominal patient. It could be up in the subclavian, staying away from the side of the chest in which penetrating trauma occurred, or usually going to the side of the chest where blunt trauma occurred. Uh, But a a cortis, otherwise known as a introducer catheter, otherwise known as a swan sheath, uh, these are wonderful because A, they're sewn in, B, they're in a central vessel, so if you need to, you give things like calcium chloride, and C is, and no one's proven this, and I'd like someone to do the research, I'm probably never going to get off my lazy butt and do it myself, but even though uh, rates of like a 14-gauge angiocath match, I think uh, the cordis fairly well when not pressurized. Pressurize a cordis and see what happens. My belief is, from my observations, that the cordis actually swells, that there's some degree of distensibility of it, and what you get is an even wider lumen than you would just looking at it without the infusion going under pressure. So cortis just delivers an insane amount of volume. Now, we're all using the Cortis catheter wrong, because well, maybe not all of us, but I think most of us, because I think we're going through the side port. And that is not the way this was intended for maximal volume uh, flow rates. The way it's supposed to be used is something supposed to be attached to the actual lumen of the cordis to allow that entire lumen to be a straight shot as opposed to the 90 degree angle with the more narrow bore side port of the cordis. Now, finding something that does this has proven difficult, at least for the manufacturer of our cortis catheter. We have what we call a slick, a single lumen infusion catheter that slides in and locks into the cortis, but it's a narrower gauge, and it's long, which means less flow rate. I think, I haven't done the tests. I think it's still quicker than the side port. But what you really want, and we had these at Shock Trauma, I haven't been able to find them again is a cap that locks in very short, just punctures the diaphragm of the cordis, and basically just the entire cordis lumen is what's being used, as opposed to some catheter going all the way down the length of the cordis. Which means you still have your side port for giving other stuff, and you're using the large-bore straight shot cordis. Now, if you have these, let me know. Tell me which brand of cordis you're using and what cap you found to make this work, because I am looking for these. Now, I haven't done this yet, but I'm really thinking of doing it, and I've been thinking about doing this at a lot of different places I work, but I think even better than a cortis would be placing hemodialysis catheters as your volume resuscitation line of choice. These are designed for incredibly high flow rates. They have two lumens. They're a little bit safer to place than the cordis, because they actually uh, have the dilator separate from the introducer itself, and uh, this has always bothered me with the cordis is the. Uh, dilator that's internally placed does not lock into the cordis so you're almost obliged to use bad technique because you really need three hands you want one hand on the wire to prevent it from pushing forward you want one hand close to the skin to allow you to exert pressure without buckling the cordis itself and then you need a third hand to hold the dilator flush against the cordis introducer itself if you've ever placed one of these you know exactly what i'm talking about So I find these silly, and the HD catheters just seem brilliant for this purpose, and I'd love to test out the flow rates, because there's two lumens within a 13 French or 12 French, as opposed to one 8.5 French lumen. But again, with that side port, I'm not sure the cortis is really going to win. Someone test this. Maybe uh, the emergency uh, trauma management course people, they seem like to test things like this. Um, But I think the HD cath may be the win, but more on that later. Okay, regardless, you now have something attached to a rapid infusion device. You need a rapid infusion device. You really should not be doing this job with anything else. Now, why? Well, the rapid infusion device we use is the Level 1. The Level 1 does three things that are incredibly important. One, it pressurizes the product. And it doesn't do it like a pressure bag does, which is as the product's bag uh, starts emptying, you actually lose pressure because it maintains 300 millimeters mercury continuously. It warms the product, which is key because you are now taking ice cold product and putting it into a patient who has exsanguination. They're going to get the hypothermia induced coagulopathy. You don't want that. And then it has air detection. Or at least the newer models the models you should have has air detection built in uh, in the level one's case it's an ultrasonic bubble detector and this keeps you from killing the patient with air embolism so these three things are good and for any patient who's actually sick that i'm giving products even if it's those first couple of units to see if they meet critical administration threshold because the patient's not dying in front of you and you're like, I don't know, is this massive transfusion, isn't it? Will they be a responder to one or two units of blood? I still give it through the level one because I want it warmed and I want it safe. And this is the way to do it. Now, there's another system out there that we're not going to talk about today called the Belmont Rapid Infuser, and I call it the Belmont Bucket. This thing looks gorgeous, but I've never even touched it, much less used it in a real patient, so I can't speak to it. If you have this system in your emergency department or intensive care unit, and you're a regular user, please comment in the show notes for this because I am super curious to know whether this is worth it, how much better it is, have you run into problems, or is it just gorgeous? Because it looks gorgeous. It, it's basically a system similar to the wrist, the rapid infusion system I had experience with in the ORs at Shock Trauma, where it's just a bucket. You could put a bunch of products in there and then hit the button to bolus 500 mLs uh, in one shot and you could just use this to keep the patient where we want them, which is, as you guys all know, if you've been listening to MCRIT, at minimal normotension. Bare minimal normotension. What is that? That's what I call permissive hypotension, because it's not hypotension. Keeping a patient at MAP of 65 is normotension. And it's just the bare minimal normotension. And that's ideal in my mind. Okay, so now how's this gonna play out? Your massive transfusion cooler arise and it really should be in a cooler because you want to be able to keep the products by your side and use them as appropriate as opposed to up oh, 15 minutes you got to send them back to the blood bank got to send them back to the blood bank that doesn't work okay so you get a cooler and now what should this cooler have it should have a bunch of blood a bunch of ffp or plasma of whatever sort you have in your hospital and platelets that's what it should have now maybe cryo maybe not we could debate that but those three components it definitively should have. Now it comes, what should you do? Well, now's the time to tell your nursing colleagues or ask your nursing colleagues, beg your nursing colleagues to please cross check all, not just the one you're gonna use right now, all of the products, which means you have to get two nurses in there and you should just have rapid fire progression through the cooler of all the products. You don't want to do this on a as-needed basis because right now the patient's blood pressure is hovering 75. You're like, all right, let's leisurely put in one unit of blood. And then all of a sudden their MAP is 20. And guess what? You want to give boom, 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 rapid-fire products but now you can't because they need to be cross-checked. Now, in my mind, and and someone from the blood bank who listens could maybe uh, confirm this, I see no reason why these cross-checks have to occur on massive transfusion packs. I think what needs to occur is two separate checks of looking at the product and saying it is appropriate for massive transfusion by the person at the level one and the person who's handing it to them. And that would seem to be enough because I'm not sure what they're cross-checking here. Um, But now what do I mean by this? Well, If the woman's of childbearing age, then she needs O-negative blood, unless you already had a confirmed blood type, but you never have that in these massive transfusion patients. So O-neg as your uh, red cells. For anyone else, women not of childbearing age or men, then it could be O-neg or O-positive. So you look at the red stuff and you say, oh, it is O-neg in a childbearing woman or it's O-anything in a man. Okay, put it in. I don't think that needs to be cross-checked plasma. This is interesting. It used to be thought that uh, the only way you could give universal plasma to a patient who uh, you don't know their blood type yet is it had to be AB. Now we know, nope, it could actually be A. And even if the patient turns out to be type B, it it turns out to be okay. And there's literature on this. I'm not sure why. I guess it's because there's just not that much antibody titer or someone will correct me in the show notes. But regardless, all the major trauma centers, including ours, are giving either A, B, or A plasma to every patient without knowing their blood type. So if you look down and it's A, B, or A plasma, give it. Platelets don't even technically need to be typed. And there's some debate about whether patients do a little bit better if it is type-specific platelets. But regardless, whatever platelets they give you is safe to give. So why are we doing these extensive cross-checks on these massive transfusion coolers? I don't understand why they're cross-checking the patient's MR, name, all this crap when uh, the patient's dying. But someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't make sense to me. But regardless, if you're at a hospital where that's the reg, you can't fight it, so have them cross-check all of the products in that cooler. Now, what are you gonna give first? Well, if you believe the major trials, the first thing you should be giving is platelets. Now, this is nice. Platelets can't be given through your rapid infusion system. They shouldn't be warmed. They shouldn't be cooled. They should be given at room temp. They should be kept at room temp. So, you find one of your peripheral IVs, and you just hang the platelets. They don't go under pressure. They don't go in the rapid infusion system. You just hang them. So the first thing you, as the orchestrator of the massive transfusion, should say is, please hang platelets. That should be the first product administered in a massive transfusion uh, after you've reached the critical administration threshold or if you deem them to be massive from the moment they arrive. Great. That's easy. You could offload that responsibility to someone else, please go hang the platelets through a blood set in a line somewhere. Okay. Now, if you have the wherewithal and the remembrance, this is also the time to tell someone to prepare TXA, tranhexamic acid. And this could also just be given through a peripheral line. Give me one gram of TXA, please. And now you've offloaded that responsibility. And who do you give TXA to? Well, if you believe the CRASH-2 trial, that it's any patient you thought was going to need blood. I find that to be crazy. I don't do that. But the second I give blood to a trauma patient, I give TXA. And that, I think, really narrows down the cohort uh, and makes for the maximal benefit. So platelets, TXA, offload, done. Now, hopefully you've already primed your level one. The second we hear a potentially sick trauma patient is coming in, we have one primed and ready to go. If not, you're going to need to do this yourself. Now, as, when I say you, who do I mean? Any of you. Any of you who are going to be the masters or the orchestrators of this massive transfusion. Now, in many places, that's nursing. And that's great if that nurse is truly a master of this protocol. And I've met many who are, and I've been very honored to work with them, uh, but many aren't. It may be a doc. As many uh, nurses as there are who are masters of this, there are far fewer docs, but you can, as a doc, become the master of this. And I advise you to do so if you're a resuscitationist. Um, But I don't care who it is, but whoever it is needs to be insanely good at this. Not oh, let me remember my in-service from two years ago. No, I mean like they've either done or visualized this to the point where this is like second nature and they could go boom, 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 boom and rapid fire use this uh, infusion device and understand all the intricacies of it. And if you're at that level, then you should be doing it. And if you're not, then the most experienced person in the room is. I often find myself taking this role in major trauma or exsanguination uh, because I have spent so much time uh, really thinking about how this works and making it happen. And when I see one of my nursing colleagues, who I know ah, this this is one of the you know this select few that are truly good at this. Not they could get their in-service uh, right and could talk about all the critical steps. That's that's just like Padawan level. We're talking someone who really can make this happen. Then I just offload that responsibility to them. So. If you haven't already primed it, uh, then you got to do rapid-fire prime. And I should make a video of this. I will make a video of this, but let me run you through it real quick. Um, I will clamp off the clamp just past the Y of the level 1. I'll spike a bag of saline or plasmite. I mean... Really, in real life, it could even be ringers. Uh, that myth about it being uh, incompatible with blood products is a myth. There's literature to that, but don't do it. People will, you know, call you out on it. They'll get pissed and they'll say, "Oh no, you're screwing it up. You're going to cause the patient's blood to clot." No, it's not worth it. Just prime with saline or plasmolite. So you spike a bag of that, and it's easier to use a smaller bag, like a 250 or 500. Um, but doesn't matter. Take what you could get. I'll spike one of those sides, and then I'll open up the other spike. So now I've actually uh, de-aired both spikes because that distal to the Y clamp is clamped, it's just going to pour out of both sides of the Y. And then I'll clamp the side of the Y that doesn't have the bag in it, and now I'll open up that clamp just distal to the Y and prime out the entire rest of the level one. This gets messy. If you had a garbage can, it's nice. You never do, so you just put it on the floor, hopefully in a place where people are not going to slip on it, and hopefully you turn it off before... It uh, it makes a huge puddle. Now, I like to use that clamp just distal to the Y as the only clamp I clamp on the level one. Otherwise, since there are thirty thousand clamps, you will never be able to troubleshoot which clamp is actually clamped. And when I'm running this, that's the only clamp I use unless I have to go through troubleshooting steps. And therefore, I always know what's open and what's not. So I will use the clamps on the individual uh, spikes themselves and that clamp just distilled to the Y. And so now I have it primed. I'll hook it up to either the cordis or my peripheral IV. And now I have a bag of fluid still there. That's going to disappear soon. It's just hanging on the hook for now. But let's let's give our first product. So now with the spike that's not in that bag of fluid, I will spike my red cells or my plasma. And I will look in the bag and make sure there's no air. I will then hang that in the pressure compartment of the level one, close it off, pressurize it. And this is being pressurized against a closed clamp on that uh, spike limb. So it's going to pressurize, but it's not open. Now I will shut down the IV fluid clamp if it hasn't already been done i will open up the port just distal to the y and now we'll open up the port last of all just underneath the blood or plasma bag and now it's going to start flowing make sure your drip chamber is not entirely filled so you can actually see it going in if it's not going in run the line from the cordis all the way up and make sure all the clamps are open okay now something should be infusing red or plasma going in now, I take off and throw away the IV bag. I make sure that's clamped. It should already have been done so because, and if I didn't mention this, this, before you open the blood or plasma, you've clamped off the fluids. Otherwise, the blood just goes up into the fluid bag. And once you've done that a couple of times, then you realize, ah, oh, I should check for that. Okay, so now you throw away the IV fluids and you put your next product up there. If it was blood on one side, now you put a plasma up, you put that in the pressurized compartment, you pressurize it, and it's now pressurized against the closed clamp. The second you stop getting dripping into the drip chamber, you clamp off the product that's running, you open up the product that's ready to go, that's now infusing. You depressurize the one that's empty, and you put a new one up there. You pressurize it against the clamp, and it's ready to go. And this is how you achieve rapid fire on your level one. And you just go red, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow. Uh, as long as you haven't yet met your patient's minimal normal tension goals. Now, the manufacturer actually recommends replacing the level one circuit after a certain number of blood products, and I don't ever remember what that is. Generally, after you've transfused like eight reds and FFPs or 12 reds or FFPs, uh, it's a good idea to start thinking about, I might want to change the circuit out, because what happens is the sediment caught by the blood filter starts accumulating and your flow rates slow down, and if you see the flow rate slowing down, that's probably a time to switch out your level one circuit so how do you do that well someone should be priming that new one in the background they don't need the level one device itself to do that and have it ready to go for you so that when you're ready you just switch them out and you basically just pop the stuff out of the existing level one throw it into the trash and um, put the new one up now what I like to do is there's a point where you could break the connection to uh, the IV line And if the patient, you know, if you've now, you know, put that under a dressing because it's a peripheral IV, this doesn't matter so much with the cortis. The cortis is easy to switch out. But if you had a peripheral uh, line and you now put like a whole bunch of dressings on it so it doesn't yank out, it could get kind of annoying. You keep the very distal tubing of the existing level one and just switch out everything else. And that allows you not to have to take those dressings down to connect directly to the hub of the angiocath again. Okay. What else? Well, on another episode, maybe a we, we should discuss calcium and when that happens. There's seemingly controversy, I never thought there was, between the blood bankers and the trauma folks like me uh, as to whether calcium is necessary during massive transfusion. We'll discuss that. Get an art line. If you're giving massive transfusion, an arterial line is key. I would almost say essential. And then the last thing we'll talk about is I think there's room, space, time, necessity for a... Massive transfusion checklist. And the way I envision this, I don't have one yet. Maybe I'll make one, or maybe you already have one, in which case comment in the show notes so that I could just steal yours. But not like a check things so much checklist, more like a record when each product is given, because this is already being done, but all of a sudden it'll be integrated into a checklist. Okay, they gave a red, they gave a plasma, they gave this, they gave that, we gave uh, 500 cc's of fluid, for whatever reason, I don't know, Uh, but whatever. And, but on that same checklist is like at the 15-minute mark, send labs, you know, and it, it's it's graphically represented in such a way that forces you to do that. And like, so send things like an iCal, fibrinogen, CBC, PT, PTT, ABG, uh, if you have it, a Tegra, Rotem. And that's on the list. You know, consider TXA, on the list. Consider calcium, uh, it's on the list. And we have all this stuff in front of the recording nurse so that they could actually you know, prime you to get this done. Uh, you're getting ready to leave. You know, here's your exit checklist. Uh, make sure you either take the level one or disconnect in such a way that it could continue to be utilized by the operating room. All of this stuff just seems perfect for checklisting. Maybe even remind people, platelets go at room temp. Here's the dose and way of administration of TXA. All of that stuff on a piece of paper that also gives you room to record the actual units being given seems like it would be super helpful. If you have something like that, let me know. I think I can leave it there. If you have comments, put them in the show notes. If you have questions, put them in the show notes. This is Scott Weingart for the MCRIP podcast saying bye-bye.